Now at ReachMD, we are all about informing physicians and medical professionals to help them become better at caring for patients. I asked our guests to be with us today because I think that our listening audience would be really interested in learning more about the OBGYN hospitalist model and how this model potentially impacts GYN surgical skills among OBGYN hospitalists practicing within the U.S. You are listening to ReachMD, and welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Renee Allen, Adjunct Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Practicing OBGYN Hospitalist with Mednax National Medical Group. Our guest today is Dr. Rob Olson, an OBGYN Hospitalist Program Consultant with over seven years' experience practicing as an OBGYN Hospitalist and who was also the founding president of the newly formed Society of OBGYN Hospitalists, or SOGH. Dr. Olson, welcome to ReachMD. Well, thanks, Renee. It's very nice to be here with you, and I appreciate the opportunity to answer any questions you might have. Well, I'm really excited to have you on as a guest. I'm really excited about this topic. So let's start in with the first question. Let's begin this podcast interview with you telling our listening audience a little bit about yourself and give a brief overview of your existing role within the field. I finished my medical school at Rutgers and then did my OBGYN training at USC in Los Angeles. I practiced for a year in California before moving up to Washington State, and I practiced in Bellingham, Washington for 27 years. I'm in a solo OBGYN practice. I was at ACOG, American Congress of OBGYN, annual clinical meeting in 2005, and was in the audience when Dr. Lou Weinstein gave the first lecture that I was aware of about OBGYN hospitalists. Sitting in the audience listening to him, I decided, gosh, that's exactly what I'd like to do. And so I went home from that meeting and told my wife I was going to sell my practice to become a hospitalist. And she got very worried about it, of course. But that's what I did. I became a hospitalist in 2007. And as you know, OB-GYN hospitalist is a relatively new concept. And in 2007, I could only identify about 15 programs in the United States. It's grown rapidly. We have over 350 programs now. So it's really fun and, and rewarding to, to see the growth of this subspecialty. It is very exciting. And so let's delve a little bit more into this current topic. Can you give the listening audience a brief overview of your perception of what the OBGYN hospitalist model is currently within the United States? The concept is the hospital or some health system entity hires us, board-certified OBGYNs, to physically stay in the hospital 24-7-365. And the reason to do that is that it makes it safer for patients, especially patients in labor. As you know, Renee, because you do this and you're a professional, sometimes things happen in labor so quickly that if the physician is in their office or at home asleep, they may not have sufficient time to quickly dash to the hospital to deal with the emergency. If one of us is there to begin the care of the patient and dealing with the emergency while the physician's on their way, then this can lead to a better outcome. And so that's the whole purpose, I think, is to have us there for safety and make it safer for women and their, their infants in labor. It's got a whole lot of other good 
attributes because having us there makes it easier for the nurses to get a second opinion about a clinical situation or a fetal monitor strip. We can take care of those patients who arrive with no assigned doctor to take care of them, and we can help the other physicians in the hospital by assisting them in surgery or doing the consultations for midwives and family doctors who might not be able to do operative vaginal delivery or cesarean sections. We can deal with that. And then what I'm finding, about 60% of the programs, the hospitalist is not only dealing with clinical problems and labor delivery, but they're also dealing with gynecologic emergencies in the main emergency department. And that's what's kind of interesting, and I think that we can delve more into that today. But the strengths and weaknesses of having an OBGYN hospital deal with GYN emergencies is sort of an interesting topic. I agree. So we're thinking about 60% of the OBGYN hospitalist programs currently within the United States has the OBGYN hospitalist covering GYN emergencies within the main ER. So let's focus particularly on that type of model of OBGYN hospitalist programs. Let's discuss a little bit further the pros and cons of that model. So what do you think, Rob, is the pro and what do you think is the con? of having that sort of setup? Well, the pro is just like in labor delivery. Sometimes an emergency happens and it's so dire and such acuity that it needs immediate attention. And a woman with a ruptured ectopic tubal pregnancy is a good example. They can hemorrhage so quickly inside their perineal cavity that they need immediate surgery to stop the bleeding. And if you have a OB-GYN physically in the hospital, they can respond immediately to the emergency department and start dealing with that clinical situation without any time delay. So I think that's a big pro. The other thing is, of course, most physicians don't want to be on call, especially be on call for patients that they don't know in the main emergency department. And so having a hospitalist assigned to take care of those patients sort of relieve that burden off the private practitioners. They don't have to to necessarily go to the ER to see those patients. The hospitals can do that. So that's another strong pro. The con is two things. One, I think the main job of the hospitalist is for safety and labor and delivery. And if they're called away from the physical labor and delivery floor and have to be in the main emergency department, then they may have a delay in responding back to labor delivery if there's a second emergency that happens there in labor delivery. And especially that's a problem if you're in surgery, because obviously if you're in surgery dealing with a GYN emergency and a topic or whatever the emergency might be, then you're not available to deal with problems in labor delivery. Some hospitals get around that by having the hospitalist to see the patient in the main emergency department, but if that patient has to go to surgery, then they can call them a backup OB-GYN private practitioner to take the patient to surgery. So the hospitalist is never actually tied up in surgery and can go back to labor delivery and respond that way. So that's a compromise some hospitals do, and I think that's a good one. What about the hospitals that don't have that sort of setup? Well, there is a possible compromise situation, but same as labor delivery. If you're doing an emergency cesarean section, you're not available to take care of the second or the third emergency that might happen. So 
practically, you can't mitigate all possible emergencies. But I think having a plan that either the hospitals only does labor delivery, or if they do have to go to the main emergency department for GYN, that they do the initial consultation. But if the patient has to go to surgery, call in a second backup surgeon, OB-GYN surgeon, to deal with that, I think is a good thing. And then many programs do set up a safety net so that if the hospitalist is either in a C-section or a GYN surgery, they can call a backup to come in and function as a hospitalist while they're tied up in surgery. So that's another good thing to do. Let's go and look at this from a different angle. Typically, full surgical privileges typically last for only two years without renewal. And so hospitalists, OBGYN hospitalists who do not perform enough GYN surgical procedures, they're in jeopardy of losing those privileges. They could be in jeopardy of losing those privileges. So in light of this, what is the best thing to do for the OBGYN hospitalists for themselves and also for the patient? What do you think, Rob? It's an interesting problem, and it does not have an easy solution. The very best is someone like myself. So after 27 years in practice doing general OBGYN and having full privileges, I was comfortable switching to only being an OB hospitalist, not doing any GYN, and therefore losing my GYN privileges. Towards the end of my career, you know, I was experienced enough that I felt comfortable doing that. I think that's a much more difficult decision for a younger physician. Personally, I love being an OB-GYN hospitalist. It's, it's the career path I chose, and, and I love doing it. A younger physician think that that's what they want to do, but after a couple of years, they might want to go back into general OBGYN practice, and then that's difficult if they've lost their privileges. And I don't know any solution to that. Of course, somebody could try being a hospital either part-time to, to see if they really liked it before committing fully, or they could begin to be a hospitalist for a year or even a year and a half. And if they weren't completely satisfied, then they would still have the ability to get full surgical privileging to start back in the general practice. Problem, of course, is once you've lost those privileges, it's very difficult to get them back. And so it is sobering, I think, for any physician to lose their privileges. It's also really important to know the hospital's policy about applying for privileges. Because one of the things you don't want to do is you don't want to apply for a privilege and have that privilege be denied because you haven't done enough cases. Because for the rest of your life, when you're applying to a hospital, there's a check mark after your privilege has ever been denied. And of course, if you have to say yes, they were, and then try to explain that, that can be awkward. If you think your privileges are not going to be granted, it's better not to, to request them. And people can kind of get around that a little bit by talking to their privileging committees and the administrative people in the hospital that that oversee that to know the number of cases that you must have to be granted that privilege and, and then choose to just withdraw that request for a privilege if you think you're going to be denied. And then if you've withdrawn and you've never asked for it, then you're not denied and then you never have to answer that on a form. What about from the patient standpoint? For example, if you have 
an OBGYN hospitalist that only does one or two laparoscopic ectopic pregnancy surgeries or salpingectomies one or two a year, should that OBGYN hospitalist continue to be performing the surgery? Is this the right thing to do for the patient that comes in and is in need at that time, critical need? I think this is something that we really have to evaluate ourselves about because it's very difficult to be proficient if you're only doing a very low volume of cases. And the reason we're doing this is we want to make it safer for patients, not less safe. The common sense one is, would you want this physician to be doing this on your wife or your daughter? And obviously, if I'm only doing one or two cases every year or two, no, I wouldn't want that physician to be the one offering on my loved one. And so therefore, if I'm that physician, I might need to do some introspection and say, no, you know, I shouldn't be performing this because I don't do enough of them to stay at the top of my game. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. And I am your host, Dr. Renee Allen. And it is my pleasure to be speaking with Dr. Rob Olson, OBGYN hospitalist, program consultant, and founding president for the Society of OBGYN Hospitalists. So Dr. Olson, we were discussing key issues affecting GYN surgical skills amongst practicing OBGYN hospitalists within the United States. So let's delve a little further in this issue. And how about if we discuss robotic surgical skills and the OBGYN hospitalists? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think most residency programs now incorporate robotic skills into their education. So when a newly graduated resident has completed a four-year program, generally they are privileged and experienced in all aspects of gynecologic surgery, including robotic surgery. The problem is that it's very difficult for a practicing OBGYN hospitalist to get any robotic cases uh, because they're almost exclusively elective surgery. And without a office or a consulting practice to have elective gynecologic robotic surgery cases, there's just not the occasion that you're going to be the primary surgeon to do that. Some physicians try to get around that by assisting other doctors, but most privileging committees don't grant privileges for first assistance. They only grant the privileges when you are the primary surgeon. So it comes back down to a young graduate or even somebody who's been in practice for a few years that may have robotic surgery bills and privileges. If they choose to be a hospitalist, then they're going to lose those skills and privileges certainly after a few years. So that becomes a very sobering decision. Do you feel comfortable enough that you want to do clinical OBGYN hospitalist work and let those robotic skills expire. And once again, it's very difficult to get those privileges back because once they're gone, it's hard to get them back. So it's a tough decision, I think, especially for the younger clinicians. It's less of a problem for older clinicians who kind of know that they're ready to just only hone their clinical skills and become a better and better OBGYN hospitalist, knowing that that means that they're going to limit their clinical ability to perform surgery. What about GYN consultations on inpatients and the OBGYN hospitalist? What about those inpatient consultations that may potentially involve cancer? What do you think the OBGYN hospitalist's role should be in such cases? 
once again, when you finish your residency, you're comfortable dealing with all aspects of general OBGYN and you're up on diagnosis of cancer or masses or abdominal pain and all these nuances. Once you've become a hospitalist for a couple of years, you're not really keeping up on the literature of the latest diagnostic test or the correct approach necessarily for an adnexal mass. And so if you're asked to be the general OBGYN consultant on a inpatient non-obstetrical case, then once again, you may not have those skills that a practicing general OBGYN would have. And so it may be a disservice to the patient for you who are not quite as, once again, experienced or on top of the game in that diagnosis to be the one that has to deal with that. And that's where, in fairness to the patient, that you may want to defer that particular consultation and have you know, practicing general OBGYN do that. And so that also becomes sort of an, an interesting problem. And I think hospitals can learn how to deal with that by thinking about it ahead of time and deciding, okay, for this particular patient, for this particular problem or diagnosis, who's going to be the very best physician to deal with that particular patient and problem? Is there an existing model for gynecologic hospitalists? How does that fit in, do you think, with the existing OBGYN hospitalist model within the U.S.? Yes. So I think especially in larger hospitals, this is going to become one of the solutions to this problem, is that there are going to be a certain amount of OB hospitalists who exclusively deal with labor and delivery pregnancy issues in the hospital, and there'll also be gynecologic hospitalists who exclusively deal with GYN problems. And those physicians can be a real asset to the hospital and to the community because they can be the ones who hone their clinical skills on inpatient gynecology. So they may be very skilled robotic surgeons and advanced laparoscopic surgeons and for the diagnosis and treatment of the emergencies like ectopic or adnexal masses or ovarian torsion. So they can be the person who stays in the hospital, maybe not 24-7, but are assigned to the hospital so they don't do necessarily clinical practice, but they're there to be the expert first assistant for maybe younger, less experienced gynecologic surgeons who need that wise, experienced help in dealing with surgery. So that's sort of a an interesting thing, I think, if we watch our profession develop in the next five or 10 years, we're going to see more and more of those particular roles for gynecologic hospitalists. Very exciting perspective developments within our specialty, Rob, within the next few years. Don't you agree? I totally agree. And I think it's, in the end, it's going to be very good for patients, once again, improving you know, quality, safety, patient outcome which is something we all want to do, but it also will improve our stress level and improve our ability to be superb physicians. And if you just think about it, you're in practice and maybe you haven't done a particular procedure for you know, a month or two, but if there's a gynecologic hospitalist you can ask to assist who does this procedure once a week or something, then that experience of their practice and their knowledge to help you become a better surgeon yourself 
take some of that stress of a tough surgery off you because you're sharing that burden with somebody else who wants to help you become a better surgeon and make the patient have a better outcome. So it's like a, a win-win for everyone. I know that right now that there are two existing fellowships within the states that is particularly geared towards training residents who want to be OBGYN hospitalists. Do you think that the curriculum for these fellowships may over time change to be streamlined in such that it's obstetric hospitalists and gynecologic hospitalists? Can you see that happening maybe in the future, Rob? You know, I I think that may happen in the future, but I think right now it's such a leap forward to just even have an OBGYN hospitalist fellowship. So what that is for your listeners is one extra year of training. The normal OBGYN residency is a four-year program, and then some of those graduating physicians will go into one of the subspecialties, maternal fetal medicine, reproductive endocrinology, oncology, urology, or women's health, one of those existing tracks. Now there's a new one, OBGYN Hospitalist, where you could choose to hone your clinical skills to focus your planned career on being a hospital. And those two fellowship programs are in existing. And right now, one in Winthrop and Hospital in New York and the other UC Irvine in California. I know of at least two more academic hospitals that are considering starting fellowship programs. And if we look at our future of our profession in the next three to five years, I bet there's going to be a half a dozen or a dozen fellowship programs. That's pretty exciting to watch. Very exciting. I agree. In the final few moments of this interview, Dr. Olson, is there anything else that you want to leave our listening audience with? Any final thoughts that you have? Having a hospitalist there in labor delivery is certainly not currently the standard of care. But if you think about it, I think it should become the standard of care for the simple reason that it makes it safer for women in labor. And so that's something that we all want. And right now, there's many, many hospitals that provide obstetrics. Some of them are very small, and this may not be applicable to the, to the small hospital that may only deliver 200 or 500 women a year. But any hospital that does 1,500, 2,000 or more deliveries a year, I think Within a short period of time, and I, I really mean like two to four to six year short period of time, are going to have hospitalists because the advantages to the patient's safety as well as the reduction of stress on the nurses and, and physicians, I think those advantages, those positive aspects just outweigh any of the negatives. And so I think in time, this is going to become fun to, to, to watch this, this change in our profession happen because I, I think it is a positive change and it's sort of fun to watch it happen and be part of it. I agree. And I'm very excited and very happy and honored to be a part of the process as well, too. Well, we're really pleased to see you do this and you communicate <laughs> you know, your experience, too. So congratulations to you. Thank you, Rob. Many thanks to Dr. Rob Olson for providing our ReachMD listening audience education on the OBGYN hospitalist model and its impact on GYN surgery among OB hospitalists within the United States. Dr. Olson, thank you so much for your insight. I really enjoyed this, Renee. Take care. I am your host, Dr. Renee Allen. 
To download this podcast and others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com. We encourage you to like, share, and comment on this episode. Thank you for listening to ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.